Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker. This first season is an exploration of race and the news media. And today we're taking a look at news organizations in a process of exploring and addressing their past. This is our season one finale, and we're so happy today to be joined by two guests who are leaders in organizations that are proving to be leaders themselves in addressing past actions, especially around race-related news coverage. Welcome today to Dave DeWitt, who is the feature news editor for WUNC, North Carolina Public Radio and NPR affiliate in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area. He is also the co-host of the podcast, Tested, as well as a member of WUNC's Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, Accountability, or IDEA committee at WUNC, dedicated to strategically fulfilling the goals of the station's commitment to anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. Welcome, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. We also welcome today Sewell Chan, who is of the Los Angeles Times, and he began his career as a reporter for the Washington Post before spending 14 years with the New York Times. He joined the Los Angeles Times in 2018 as a deputy managing editor, and in 2020, took on the role of the Times editorial page editor, where he oversees the editorial board and the paper's op-ed and Sunday opinion pages. We're so glad to have you here with us today, Sewell. It's a privilege to be here, Kathy. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being with us today. So we have a bunch of questions because one of the things um, we read an article uh, probably several months ago, and it actually started in Kansas City about newspapers thinking about um, how they had covered communities in the past, what their news coverage had been, and to begin to open up and examine for themselves, right? where they were in terms of the kinds of coverage they provided and perhaps how those stories contributed to um, some of the conversations that we're continuing to have today around race and society. So I want to ask you first, Sewell, how did you all get to a place? What made you decide to even be, do this work? Yeah, um, thank you, Kathy. Um, so the Los Angeles Times um, when, uh, like many institutions, both inside the news media and also in our broader society, you know, went through a lot of profound um, questioning and discussion last summer as the, you know, um, inescapable reality of racial injustice, you know, rose to the top of the national conversation. And uh, we had already had a lot of discussions at the Los Angeles Times about the institution's painful history, um, you know, which stretches over 100 and, and uh 140 plus years now. And so, you know, in, in short, um, the institution was acquired by a new owner in 2018, um, the first ever owner of color of the Los Angeles Times. And there's a new management team of which I've been privileged to be a part. And uh, as, as the um, murder of George Floyd, you know, was followed by a real reckoning across our society, we really, um, two things happened really. You know, first we and the management team you know, decided that it was really time to take a hard look at the LA Times's own, you know, problematic history and how we had covered or not covered um, issues of importance to the communities of color here in LA and Southern California, and also how we had treated employees of color. Simultaneous to that process, members of our staff um, through the News Guild, the union representing our journalists, really asked the LA Times to kind of engage in a kind of reckoning looking at its past and offering even a formal public apology for, um, uh, for you know, sins of both omission and commission. And so we, we undertook a pretty um, extensive months long project and published it uh, at the end of the summer, um, you know, trying to make sense of all this. That's fantastic. Um, so Dave, same question to you. I know that you all are, are um, have, your, have a committee now right idea so can you tell us a little bit about how that came into being yeah it was really born out of about 18 months ago um going through all the same things that that Sewell just mentioned but in addition to that I mean we're a younger journalistic entity we basically went online in the 70s um and so 
and we have tended over the years to very much hear from listeners when they think we've gone in directions we shouldn't have gone on. And, and I don't think I'm breaking any news here when I say that a public radio station and NPR, we tend to have listeners that lean a little more progressive and are pretty well educated generally. Um, and so I think these were the kinds of issues and topics, obviously, we we're always aware of. Um, but because of also because of the way public radio has sort of been constructed over the years, um, reporters who came in in the 70s, 80s and 90s uh, tended to come from Ivy League schools, tended to be white, tended to be pretty well off entering the field. And because of that, we haven't seen leadership um, among, uh, that represents the community that we try to serve. Um, and so we started to begin to talk about some of those blind spots we all have. And we decided we wanted to bring together sort of entities within our station to take a deep, hard look at our past, but also where we were right then and what we could do to be better. Um, and so we, as you mentioned, created this idea committee. Um, we populated with people from sort of up and down the organization, people who were quite frankly contractors, uh, maybe a year or two into their careers, people who worked in our business office, people who worked in our IT engineering and journalists. And so it was really interesting over the course of this time to set short, medium and long-term goals. Uh, and But really try to say, this is what we're trying to do and we're gonna set deadlines to try to get there. Everything from how we hire to how we mentor young reporters to how we reach and understand what our audience wants. Um, so it's a pretty holistic approach and we've attained some of those goals and we've fallen short on some others, uh, which is kind of how life works. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so let me um, ask about the LA Times because kind of reading the article and the apology that you all did was very fascinating. But one of the things that I, I ponder is that I understand where um, all kinds of organizations are going to have blind spots because of a lack of diversity. I wonder though about beyond the blind spots where sometimes news organizations intentionally created stories or intentionally created a, a, a kind of telling the story in such a way that it would impact the people they most wanted to serve in a different kind of way. Does that, does that make sense to you? Um, yeah. Do, do you mean kind of examples of egregious coverage or? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. No, it's it's pretty it's pretty horrifying. Look, our, our series began with um, an example from the early 1980s. So we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about the, you know, the lifetimes of many of our readers and, and my own included, you know, in which um, uh, there was a big story about kind of increasing crime in um, lower income neighborhoods kind of in the in the kind of periphery of LA um, in terms of suburb, suburbs and exurbs and how, how the crime was coming into these um, uh, more central neighborhoods, including affluent neighborhoods like Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. And, you know, stripped across the front page, it was, it, you know, was the use of the word marauders and really this kind of very, very dark imagery of, um, of uh, people coming in to commit crimes who were kind of portrayed as a kind of menacing and invading force. And, you know, I want to be clear, I think that coverage of violent crime is, is difficult. Um, it needs to be approached sensitively. Um, it's not a reality that we can ignore. But the way this was framed and the way that it was presented really was, you know, at best highly irresponsible and and at worst, you know, really, really kind of fomenting, um, you know, a kind of discord that, that we don't want to see. And I think that was a time when this was only 40 years ago, right? It's not that not we're not talking about the 1880s when the LA Times also existed. We're talking about the 1980s. And, um, you know, we really had to look at that example and other really, really hard cases, you know, squarely in the eye and look at, you know, what was the what was the what were the word choices we were using? How did we portray and frame things? Whose perspectives were we emphasizing and who were we writing for? You know, I like to say, Kathy, that in journalism, we're asking profound questions right now about who's telling the stories, whose stories are being told and who we're telling the stories for. And the truth is that most publications, most media outlets have to do a much better job answering all three questions. Thank you for that. So, Dave, when you think about who are we telling these stories, to, who who are we telling the stories to, who are we telling the stories for, 
those can be very different questions. And um, so I'd also like to know from a public radio standpoint, and I know that a lot of it is driven by donations. And so you're really, you're very um, attentive, I guess, I would think, to what you think your listeners want to hear. But um, so how do you weigh that? How do you balance what it is that you think listeners want to hear based on the people who are subscribing to, you know, to NPR kind of stations and telling stories of community interest that really portray everybody in a kind of an equal way? Yeah, those are conversations we've had before the sort of last 18 months, but have really intensified now. And one of the things we're finding is we don't have great data on our listeners. <laughs> like we, we know who our donors are, um, and we like our donors, but you know, we don't know who our listeners are really. And so we've had to guess in the past, this is what they want to hear. And this might be what they want to hear. And as Sewell was saying, oftentimes you start to think of, you know, okay, we're going to give them a comprehensive view of this story, whether it's a piece of legislation, le pardon me, legislation making its way through the state legislature. So who's this going to impact? And, and what are the different sides saying about what this is? And oftentimes we do that from a very distinct political perspective, which in this state is a very white male perspective, because uh, that's who our, most of our lawmakers are. So we've stepped back and said, okay, not only are we gonna talk about who this would affect, but we're gonna talk about the history of how we even got to this point where this voting legislation uh, is going to change things and who it's targeted at. Um, and so we've had to start to think about our audience a little bit different, not as like we want to serve the people we know it, who our donors are, but let's also try to grow our audience. If we don't have African-American listeners that are in numbers on par with what the state of North Carolina population is, that means we're not serving that audience well, that they want to hear something different that they're not hearing from us. Same goes with uh, you know Latino community. It same goes with every community. If we're If our listeners aren't um, on par percentage-wise or numbers-wise, then we're not serving that group. But also then we understand there's diversity within all of those groups. And so it really has, um, we've had to really rethink, I think, how we've presented the news, how we've approached it, and who we're going to first, um, and how our reporters are, you know, we have to voice our own stories. So all of our stories are in the reporters' voices, not just, I mean, not that print's a bad thing, love print, but you know, it's coming out of your mouth. And so you've got to be extremely comfortable with that. And you've got to feel like you have an authority that in the past, we might've said, oh, we're going to pass this off to an expert to say, well, now if this policy is racist, the reporter should say, should, pardon me, should say so. Um, and that's a change. And so all of these little elements are things we're examining. So I'm curious, we've had some moments in history in the past that were pretty monumental, right? Whether you look at civil rights or you look at um, different um, community uprisings and things like that. What is it that, because both of you are framing your work within the last 18 months. So what was it about the last 18 months? What, what was it about the George Floyd murder that made it, th that heightened, gave everybody such a heightened awareness that people decided that this was the time to make monumental shifts and to go back and to review history? Well, I can start maybe by saying it's it's a huge question, Kathy. I can start by saying that I think this is a moment for, for any, look, I still believe in institutions. Um, I feel we're living in a profound time in the 21st century when a lot of institutions are under assault for a whole host of reasons, um, including rising mistrust, hyperpolarization, um, sometimes a feeling among younger people that the older institutions aren't relevant um, or, or adapting quickly enough. And then of course, institutions themselves and leaders themselves have failed uh, in the past. So I think that for, for an institution like the Los Angeles Times, um, you know, to, to kind of you know, reposition itself to be a much more inclusive, much more community-based, much more hum humane and humanistic organization We've got to do things in different ways. I'm going to be frank. The Los Angeles Times was started in 1881 as a publication, really by, of, and for the kind of Anglo power elite. 
in Los Angeles. And, and we're not even talking Catholics and Jews here. We're talking white uh, uh, Protestants, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, including Episcopalian and, and, other, and other Protestant denominations, you know, folks who come here from the Midwest. Um, these were folks who disdained the later Oki migration from the Arkans from Arkansas and, and Oklahoma, and they certainly were a community that that didn't really have close ties to the indigenous and Mexican and uh, and Latino communities, uh, uh, you know, who had all who had been here for centuries, um, and and certainly didn't have ties to the African American migration that started coming to LA in big numbers in the 20th century. So simply put, you know, this was an organization that kind of stood for a kind of boosterism. You know, the LA Times helped to build Los Angeles. It literally advocated moving water here, and moving natural resources here, and then the railroads, and then and then the kind of settling of LA. Um, um, you know, at one point the LA was described as a kind of white spot. Uh, literally, those words were used to describe the you know the kinds of people who were expected to move to LA. Now, that's of course a very very different uh, picture from the kind of multi-ethnic, really incredibly heterogeneous you know metropolis that LA is today. Uh, and there's a lot to be proud of here. Um, and and we tried to mix. We try to you know contextualize the good and the bad. But it's also true that the LA Times had real um, you know, failures in coverage, going back to the 1965 Watts uprising, the 1992 Los Angeles uh, uprising. And of course, there was some civil unrest last year um, that, that accompanied the, uh, the, the racial reckoning. And so we really, it was really a moment to kind of stand up and, and, and take a side and stand up for, for the side of, you know, the notion that we, we can, in fact, make progress. We can, in fact, reset the narrative or at least try. It's a curiosity for a, a newspaper like the LA Times because it's such an old paper. So uh, part of my wondering as I was looking at the at the apology and looking back at the historical um, um, articles that were presented um, as a part of that apology was whether or not even the owners of that paper had a level of resentment because in their minds they were creating this um, wonderful space in, uh, in Los Angeles right for a certain group of people and then what they considered it almost looked like they were being invaded by groups of people they had been trying to get away from yeah i mean it's 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 a troubling history you know right now the la times is in a special moment in 2018 we were acquired um by um dr patrick and michelle soon chong and they are a couple of chinese ancestry but who were born and raised in apartheid south africa and they were denied professional opportunities um, because of their race, literally living in a racial caste system. Uh, so they uh, they moved first to Britain and then to the United States, where they where they did very well for themselves. And uh, um, Patrick and Michelle are very committed to giving back to the community of Los Angeles, which which has which has been so good to them and their family. So I think that's part of the context. You know, I want to point out that the LA Times, you know, right now has its second African American editor in chief. We've had three editors in chief of color. I'm the first Asian American to be to oversee the opinion side. So there's definitely some progress that's been made, but we also know that we have to do much better. I, I'm just going to be frank, Kathy. When when I got to the LA Times, I thought, wow, this is the most diverse newsroom I've ever worked in compared to the newsrooms I'd worked in in, in DC and New York. But this isn't DC and New York. You know, California mm -hmm. is, is a majority uh, people of color state. Um, it's kind of at the at the frontier of a lot of the demographic and cultural changes sweeping America. And the expectation of folks here, especially among our Latino journalists, was that this needs to be a paper that reflects the fact that, you know, L.A. is a half Latino city and in a state that's about 40 percent Latino. And, you know, I had to kind of get with the program and I, I hope I did. But it definitely, you know, shaped, shaped my view because, you know, region still matters a lot in America. Sure. And the context in North Carolina might be very different from the context in the West Coast. Mm -hmm. I think that is true. And so that's why I'm going to turn to Dave now and say, as you look at um, at North Carolina, I think certainly it's a, a state that is exploding, um, right? It uh, keeps being voted, these various areas of North Carolina keep getting voted as the greatest place to live in the world. But you're seeing a lot of industry move into North Carolina and, and becoming more diverse. So how does that impact you know, um, your perceptions, the perceptions of the, the editors and the staff of WUNC in terms of content coverage? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So what Sewell was saying about LA, it's a very different than here in North Carolina. Um, and so a lot of times uh, we're trying to serve an audience 
of people who live here who don't know much about the state at all because they might have just moved here. They might have moved into Cary, the containment area for relocated Yankees, we call it, um, <laughs> or or they've moved into other places. And so a lot of it is just that, right? And look, I've lived here since 1998, worked here uh, at WNC since about 2003. I used to be the higher education reporter, and I would walk around UNC's campus all the time and never really knew the story of the Silent Sam statue. And I think that's really a good metaphor for the, the errors that we've made. Um, we at WNC, we may, not have, we may not have a long list of stories where we've put out there, which, which in retrospect, just look horrible and, and all of those things, but it's the blind spots we had, right? That's, that I walked by Silent Sam dozens and dozens and dozens of times and never thought, why is there a Confederate statue in the middle of this campus that's been around and was essentially constructed by slaves and all the names on the buildings are slave owners from the past. And so I was there the night it got torn down, uh, covering it. I, and, and it sort of began to open my eyes about all the different stories in the South that have never been reported. All the, um, the lynchings and all the stories of deaths and terrible situations that we just haven't told over the years. And when I mean we, I mean everybody. Um, and we've seen the News and Observer here, the big paper in Raleigh, go through much of what the LA Times has gone through. They, Josephus Daniels was the uh, owner and family owned, and he was a major part of the coup in Wilmington in 1898. They've begun to have that same conversation and owning up to the past of that paper. You know, we're a much younger organization here, but it's much more, it's egregious in the way that we've just haven't seen and reported on the things that we needed to, to do. And I think what the murder of George Floyd pointed out to us was not only can that happen here or anywhere, but it has happened here. Um, we just haven't covered it. And we saw it happen with Andrew Brown in Elizabeth City not long after. So all of the things that are happening everywhere not only happen here, but really have been swept under the rug for a long, long time. So the question I guess now is the, the work that you all are doing towards um, this, this kind of racial reckoning, is this unique? Are, is this unique to WUNC and to the LA Times? Are these isolated incidents? Or do you think more and more or news organizations are doing this kind of work? I, I would say more and more, Kathy. Um, the Kansas City Star, as you mentioned earlier, recently undertook a big project looking at its past. A number of Southern newspapers have looked at how they covered or even more troublingly failed to cover lynchings. And, um, and, and racial massacres, you know, from everywhere from Tulsa, Oklahoma to, to Wilmington, North Carolina, right? And, and, um, and there's also been a movement among, um, really even at, at a, a pretty profound level to even rethink some of the habits and customs of journalism. For example, the Boston Globe has opened an initiative that lets people uh, petition if they, were, if they were written about, let's say they had been arrested or charged with something, but let's say they never were um, uh, convicted or let's say they were released, or let's say they served their time and, and, and did the time and, and, and now they're trying to rehabilitate and, and they have an unusual name and the Google search result follows them and makes it harder for them to get, you know, employment or education. So the globe is letting people kind of petition, you know, and, and it, it's really made us all rethink also how we covered crime. You know, this is a country that loves its mugshots, but really like, you know, what, what did, what, what good does that do? Right. And now if someone's, you know, wanted by the law or something it's important for the public to know what they look like okay that's one thing but you know routinely in america we'd have police departments just issuing releasing the photos of people arrested on pretty minor stuff and i think there's a lot of rethinking right now about journalistic custom and practice what are the things that we did you know out of habit what service um, did they provide what information was important for our communities to know and i think that broader kind of hopefully ethical you know, uplift that that's going on right now. I hope that results in some lasting change. Nice. Several of the um, uh, in in several of the episodes that we've had to date, um, people have remarked that um, doing crime stories is really the always the low hanging fruit, 
it's always easy to do. And of course, having worked in a police department for years, I realized that they love to send you stories and beg you to put stuff on the air, uh, negative things. And um, they always have a picture. And so, you know, it looks really great on television, but it is true of what happens if a person, just because even a person is arrested, doesn't mean they're ever even gonna get charged with a crime. Um, you know, cause later they'll figure out and all, all the charges will be dropped. But this person is, is out there and has been labeled in the community. And how often we do that, particularly for people of color. Whereas, you know, and I can remember, you know, so many times now where people run to the television, in, particularly in black communities, I think, and say, oh God, just don't let him be black this time. You know, just, and you know, and you know, if there's no picture, chances are that's because that is not an African-American. And so we understand, I think in certain communities, when we live in those communities through our lived experiences of what this kind of, um, you know, storytelling feels like all the time, right? Because it happens in some seemingly subtle ways, and yet they're very impactful to communities. So beyond the crime stories, though, um, how are you, um, how do you think you've been refocused on telling other kinds of stories about communities that can be positive, that can um, reinforce the idea that everybody in that community is not poor, everybody in that community is not disenfranchised. Or, you know, and so how do you tell those stories so that people living in other communities have a different understanding of people of color just generally? Well, I, maybe I could say, make one observation that I'd love to hear from Dave. Um, you know, I've heard more discussion recently of taking a solutions-oriented or, or asset-based approach. You know, journalism historically, let's face it, we're, at our best, I think we can be very good at diagnosing problems. And it's a really important part of what journalists do. Like we, we point out, you know, injustices in our society and, and hopefully we, we, we point out wrongdoing or, or oppression. Um, we haven't always been so great about giving people, you know, reasons to have hope. And I think at, at this moment right now of, of considerable anxiety and even in some, some places despair, you know, it's important for journalists to remind people that there are great things happening all the time. I'm not trying to be rosy about this. I'm not saying that, that individual um, uh, goodwill, you know, can overcome structural racism on its own. I'm not saying that. But I do think that, you know, looking at, at you know, looking at programs that are effective, looking at people do amazing things for their community and looking, frankly, at the resilience that a lot of disadvantaged communities really showed during this pandemic, for example, I think that's an important part of the story, too. You know, I'm never going to say that um, we never want journalism to stray from its core mission of, of you know, um, exposing injustice. And, and you know, raising people's sense of moral urgency, but we also don't want to have a journalism that's so negative that it just leads to kind of political paralysis. We have to remind people that they are citizens, that they are voters, that they have agency in their own lives, um, even or especially if they're if they're facing hardship. And Dave, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, to that I would add, you know, we're to be quite frank, you know, WNC is, I have for years called us kind of a boutique news operation. We've got 15 to 25 or 30 journalists. We don't have 150 people. So we have to be picky and choosy about the kinds of stories we do, the kinds of investigations we do. If we're going to devote two or three people to a story for three to five months, uh, it had better be a really good story that not just is going to uncover something, but as Sewell said, sort of point a way forward, if you will, for how something might be done uh, better. And it's also crucial within that smaller framework that you have individual people that you listen to and that you trust and whose opinions matter. And it's that group needs to be as diverse as possible from all aspects of life. I have a colleague who is the only person in the newsroom who's been here longer than me, Lee Nita Inge. Uh, we're super lucky to have her. She's an African-American reporter. She's from the South. She has a unique, um, very positive way of looking at the world. I mean, she told me, gosh, it's been 15 years ago. I, she said, my, my, I come at it from, I love black people and want to tell their stories. And that was what she told me 15 years ago. And she's never wavered from that. So when I became an editor and we started working together on stories, we created a beat for her that allowed her to do that more frequently and more deeply. Um, so using the resources we have, which aren't enough and they never are. Um, the human resources, never enough. We would love to have more people from various backgrounds, but 
the fact is we we're lucky to have some people here um, who could have gone elsewhere. You know, the other thing I always say is we're kind of the AAA of of the media world where we have some people who come through here in AAA baseball. And if they do really well, they go to bigger places. But some people stay here for a while. And so building a real cohesive, you know, news gathering unit from that is really challenging sometimes. But you also have real pride in the people who go on to NPR and who go on to WNYC or go on to the New York Times. Um, almost all of those people who've gone on from our place have been reporters of color because we do a decent job of, of mentoring and nurturing people here. Um, and those folks are very um, good at their jobs and they go places and do incredible things. And then they always tell us how much they missed working at WNC um, only because we gave them an opportunity to tell the stories they wanted to tell. One of the things we've done over the years I think is pretty good is we've never been a super top-down organization. We've always let reporters come up with the majority of their story ideas. Um, and that's allowed us to tell stories that sometimes are more positive or at least aren't painting the communities in a very specific, maybe uh, stereotypical light. Yeah. So as we move forward, do you anticipate that, is this a blip in time in terms of how we're doing this business right now? And will we just kind of, you know, as time goes on, kind of move back towards what was familiar and comfortable? Or have we really made a major shift in how we're going to do news in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, we've had, our, we've had uh, one and a half years of the IDEA committee that you've re referenced to WNC. Yeah. And so now we've had a sort of half group turnover and new people coming on. Um, and I've already seen, uh, to be super honest, I've already seen a little bit of that kind of slip, a little bit of that kind of like, we were really, really focused on changing things. And we we were able to make the easy changes first. Um, it's, the hard, it's the longer, harder changes that are longer and harder. And so, you know, We've tried since 2015, we've had a youth reporting institute in which we've tried to go out and sort of um, get young people interested in this very specific kind of reporting. We've reached in a very specific communities to do this. But in North Carolina, we've WNC has ignored HBCUs, for example, as a great opportunity to cultivate talent um, that would benefit us and others. So that's a harder thing that we're trying to do now is to develop relationships with schools. It's super easy here with Duke and UNC, Chapel Hill and NC State, there's talent coming at you everywhere. Um, the HBCUs are here and they're super talented people, but we're taking on harder tasks. And so because they're harder, you start to feel like you're not making as much progress as you were early in the process. Um, and that's a, that's a concern. And just, you know, I've sat on dozens of search committees here we get 200 applicants for every reporting job. And it's just, it's a little discouraging when 99% are white people. And so you're trying to then go out and cultivate a bigger audience and a bigger group of people from which to draw talent. And that's a long process that is going to take real work. That's going to take people associated with it. So I'm, I'm worried, quite frankly, that of that sort of, are we going to miss this point in time? And is there going to be a backlash coming the other way? And I'm very curious because, of course, in North Carolina, as the um, Latino community continues to grow, um, how is your or what is the, the the curve for bringing in those voices as well into some of these conversations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm talking about young people bringing them into our organization. It's it's so refreshed. I do not speak Spanish. I. I just don't, and I, I wish I could, and I've tried to learn, and but I find every single reporter who's come in the last five years at our place are, are bilingual. They, they speak English and Spanish, and they may not be you know completely uh, fluent, but they can tell the stories, and they can get they can get honest reactions from people within different communities um, that we just couldn't get before because old white guys like me can't speak Spanish. And so taking the opportunity to utilize the talents and skills that younger people have is just wonderful. And that's, I'm actually really encouraged by that. We've done a better job in the past. I mean, actually it was not even eight, 10 years ago. I remember having an argument with an NPR editor who wanted to change some language in my story to say, well, we need, we're, we're, we're referring to this person as an, you know, an illegal immigrant. And I was like, well, isn't, shouldn't we, should we call somebody illegal? 
that seems like a bad idea. And like, do we call people who create different kinds of crimes? We call them illegal people. Um, but that was, you know, 10 years ago, that conversation doesn't happen. Now we've at least advanced a little bit beyond, beyond that. But that was, um, you know, uh, I remember that step being huge eight years ago. <laughs> and, and now you think back and go, I can't believe we ever did that. Um, and, and so now you're talking about recentering the conversations in different communities, um, which we're doing a better job of, but we could, we can obviously do better. Gotcha. So um, I know that, first of all, we want to say congratulations to you because we do know that you are getting ready to leave the LA Times. So this was a, you know, a mammoth project that you were able to complete in your time there. And I'm sure that uh, the people in LA are, are saddened to see you go, but they're also very excited by the work that you've done while you were there. But I want to just ask you a couple of questions just about the place you're going to, which is to Texas, which has a whole another set of problems that will be much different from LA and assimilating there should be quite an interesting process as well. But this whole notion of you're going to a nonprofit newsroom, and if you would just take a minute or so and just tell us what is that and how does that influence the way in which stories are told and developed? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Kathy. Yeah, I'm leaving to become the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan um, news organization, uh, uh, Digital First, that uh, covers politics and policy and, and their impact on communities um, in the state of Texas. It was founded in 2009. And the Texas Tribune is one of the better known examples of nonprofit newsrooms that have kind of sprung up all across America, partly in response to the erosion or the weakening of local and regional news, as newspapers in particular have either folded or cut back on resources because of a whole bunch of economic and technological changes. Now, of course, nonprofit news is not new. Uh, public radio stations like the one Dave works at, you know, have been have been excelling at nonprofit journalism for for many decades. But what I think is new are these uh, publications that are kind of more text based. You know, we're not that are not that are not audio that not, not primarily audio, and that really either cover specific places like the state of Texas or specific subject matter, like Chalkbeat, for example, covers education. Um, the uh, Kaiser Health News covers health policy, Inside Climate News on climate change, um, uh, uh, and the Marshall Project, which writes about criminal justice issues. So you have a whole raft of nonprofit newsrooms. Look, I think nonprofit newsrooms have a lot of advantages. One is that inherently they're very mission-driven. There isn't a, a kind of um, shareholder, or there's no, you know, there's no kind of corporate board to make profits for, and uh, the, you know, the, there's not really ownership. It's oper obviously operated in the public interest uh, by by volunteer boards, overseen by volunteer boards of directors. But that doesn't mean that um, these institutions are free of problems either. You know, I'm very very curious to know about um, what the Texas Tribune does in terms of looking at racial equity and the impact of public policies on uh, communities of color. I'm also very, very interested in understanding um, uh, kind of the relationship between, you know, covering news about, you know, decision makers, but then actually having that news reach and influence, you know, actual ordinary people. I think it's a big challenge in covering politics to make sure that we're not writing for ourselves, we're not writing for elites, we're writing for people whose lives are directly impacted by the policies being enacted. That should be a fascinating adventure. Really, really good. I mean, I would think that at its apex, it would be fantastic because it is really specifically drawing the reader in based on around a set of ideals, um, as opposed to, you know, the, the typical daily newspaper that you get that you're just kind of anticipating an array of news stories. So let me ask you, let me go back to the LA Times for a moment. You all did your apology and that was great. And so is there anything beyond that or what, what's next for the LA Times in terms of the, the, the reckoning around the, their past? Well, our institution made several commitments. I mean, one of them is, is, significant, is to significantly increase the proportion of black and Latino journalists in our newsroom to try to get closer to parity. Uh, and to try to do that within within a few years, you know, um, so that that's a major initiative. I think we've reflected that already in the appointments of many um, editors and senior editors in the past year who are journalists of color. And I also think that there's a general orientation in the organization right now about really redoubling our focus on the communities of Southern California. 
And, um, and I think that's all bearing some fruit. Look, in journalism, and, and Dave got at this, you know, we've historically had a real pipeline problem. We are often good at hiring interns or entry-level journalists um, who are diverse, but not so good about helping to develop and, and promote and advance their careers, helping them to, to kind of, you know, helping to nurture them and help them build their skills and then keeping them in journalism. Um, you know, much less, you know, helping them advance to lead to positions of management and leadership. And so as, you know, as a leader in journalism, I'm really trying to, you know, put put diversity and equity and inclusion at the center of my thinking about who we bring into organizations, who we empower, um, and how we and how we, you know, kind of bring them up through the ranks of journalism. And, and I want to just emphasize that I in my approach to diversity really includes many, many different factors. One thing that we have to work on in America, I think, is better class diversity among who becomes a journalist. I'm the first in my family to go to college. That's pretty rare in American journalism, at least in the places I've worked. You know, we need more people who come from working class families, more people who come from rural backgrounds, more people who've served in the military, more people who are of faith and take their faith seriously in their lives. And I think, you know, and of, and of course, more diversity along racial, uh, gender, and sexual orientation and those lines as well. So we really have to take a broad approach so that our journalism newsrooms look more like America. So as you look to becoming an editor in chief, is this also, you know, um, the kind of uh, philosophy that you take with you to, to Texas? Yeah, very much so. I think Texas is, is, you know, is every bit as dynamic and as diverse as, as you know, California. And it'll be interesting, you know, there might be some similarities between North Carolina and Texas, Kathy, and that you've got a whole bunch of people moving in, you got growth, you got a lot of very dynamic uh, situation. And you have a mixture of a complex history, but also a lot of uh, a lot of new, you know, new changes going on uh, demographically and, uh, and to some extent politically. Nice, very nice. Um, Dave, let me just ask you, um, the station's commitment to anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. I just want to ask you, I, I like that saying, but what does it mean really? I think it means a shift from just, you know, we've, I, looking back at our, our past and journalistically, I think we've always done a pretty good job of recognizing the systemic racism that existed in our political systems and our economic systems and other systems in the state of North Carolina. But we haven't done a very good job of not only just pointing out those things, but then saying that those things are wrong and that there are other things going on that are working better or could work better. You know, we have, instead of just taking, you know, we've always been anti-racist, but to say it and now really work toward that, that's a different step journalistically. And I was having a conversation with a young reporter the other day from South Texas uh, originally, and she is, this is her first feature story for WUNC, hasn't aired yet, and it's about um, heat, urban heat, you know, in, in, in Raleigh and Durham over the past decades, uh, certain communities haven't had trees planted, they haven't had covered bus stops, they haven't had any of these things put in, and low-income areas suffer more than from heat problems, um, and it gets hot in North Carolina in the summertime, so we're talking about this story and she gets to a point in the story where she wants to basically say that these are racist policies that have gone on for many years. And because she's been schooled so well journalistically, she's thinking, oh, I need to find an expert to say this, or I need to find somebody to say this. I'm like, no, you can say that. I think it, you can be very comfortable saying that those policies were put in place are racist policies. And these are the things that are being done to try to undo some of those things. And that's different from the way journalism was practiced even recently, where you would just pre present these different sides of a problem and then let the dear reader or the dear listener form their own opinion. And so now I think we're taking a different step into finding the most verifiable version of the truth that we can and stating that as unequivocally as we can. And that's different. Um, young reporters are excited to do it. And, and old people like me get a little shaky, but we're, <laughs> we're on board. And I think that's what that means. When our organization states that, um, that's what it means from a journalistic standpoint. Now, from an in, sort of in-house standpoint, it means a lot of different things and how we manage different elements of how we do things and who we hire and all that. But journalistically, that's that's what we stand by. You know, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to respond to that, Dave, because I do think that's such a compelling discussion going on within journalism right now. There's a lot of critique of well, there are different critiques of journalism. One critique is that we engage in both sidesism. Like, well, there are the here are these folks who deny that climate change is even happening, and then here are these folks who, 
you know, are sounding the alarm. Um, and, and this idea that we can't, shouldn't engage in kind of false equivalency, saying that one perspective, which is backed by the vast majority of scientists, has the same weight as another perspective, which is not really backed by any credible science. So, so we don't want to engage in that. At the same time, there's another critique, though, which says that, you know, which says that news organizations have been, um, you know, aren't, aren't as fair as they used to be and, and kind of take sides and put their thumbs on the scale. And I think we have to listen to that, too. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are a lot of especially conservative folks, I think, who have lost trust in the mainstream media. And that's not something I relish or 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 um, or I'm happy about in any way, because I think we're at our most powerful when we can speak to a broad audience. So I think we have to balance, you know, frankly, those two critiques. You know, one thing I try to always tell journalists is that ultimately it's better to show than to tell. You know, there are a lot of questions that come up like, OK, well, can we say this person lied or can we say this person's racist or this policy is racist? And, and I'm not saying no. I'm not saying no, we can't. But I am saying that usually, you know, it, it's better to ask, well, what can we show? What are the impacts of these words or these actions? Who is affected and how? If we show things, then we're building a stronger case for, for what the effects are and, and not, you know, starting by, uh, but with a label. And, and so it's, it's a tough time in journalism right now, though, because you do have these really two critiques, right? One is that we have been, um, you know, too wishy-washy and don't call things out as they are. But then the other side says, you know, well, you know, we're, we're like the liberal establishment, you know, we don't, we don't listen to uh, enough to, to viewers and listeners and readers and, you know, in, uh, in more, uh, uh, you know, in more, frankly, more Trump supporting areas of the country. And, and given that 40 plus percent of our, of our electorate voted for Trump, we, we really need to take, you know, the concerns of those voters seriously. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but that does mean we can't ignore them. So this always gets into this area for me, which I, I wonder about, which is around how when we're telling stories, like there was a time, I think, in place where we thought facts were facts, right? The truth was just the truth. I mean, and you just had to let the chips fall where they may. So the question is, if we're um, telling the truth, even if it may be, um, and it, there's a difference between telling the truth of a story and still, or be and being biased about a story. So I'm not talking, I'm not talking about biases, but I'm talking about just kind of laying the facts out there, which will help us to arrive at an idea, perhaps, that it is a racist policy that we won't put coverings on bus benches only in the uh, you know low low income areas. So what is the difference between that kind of truth and having this over concern or this high level of concern around how that's going to be received by a particular um, segment of the population? You know, it's a great question. I, I would say that facts themselves don't necessarily amount to the truth. Um, sometimes when I think about truth with a capital T, I think that's something you might need to get from maybe the court system, but also quite, <laughs> quite possibly, you know, a certain higher authority that you are familiar with, Kathy. You know, um, there, there are there are certain truths that perhaps you know are beyond beyond the grasp of uh, of, of us mere humans. No, but in all seriousness, like I try to emphasize, you know, fairness, accuracy, and context. If you get those three things, you know, I avoid the word balanced a little bit because you know, one person's balance is another person's false equivalency. I also think the term objective has become you know, a little bit more loaded. I'm not saying that I don't believe in objectivity, but it's it's actually a very complex subject. Um, and the term neutrality is, is also very complex, right? Are you are you neutral in the face of oppression? Are you neutral in the face of, of violence or of suffering? But I always try to go back to the basics, which are accuracy, fairness, context. And I'm not saying that those are easy to arrive at, but to me, those are more manageable concepts. You know, are we, are we, give, are we giving each side a fair shake? That doesn't mean we're saying that they're equivalent, but are we giving people and their points of view a fair shake? So then in reading it, they're like, okay, well, this article may not portray me or my side in the best light, but at least they're making an effort to understand what we believe, what we advocate, what we feel. And I think in a society as divided as ours, we definitely need media who can, again, just, just you know, accuracy, fairness, and then supply the context and then help inform the love the citizens so that they can make better decisions for our democracy. What I would add to that, and I agree with all of that, is, you know, 
I mentioned we're kind of a boutique news operation. So it means we can take sometimes a little bit more time uh, on a story. Um, we're not the LA Times where we have to fill a certain number of pages every day. Um, what we what we always get to a point in a story where it's time to say, okay, are we done with the reporting? And is it time to publish, distribute, put this thing on the air? And now what I think is we're, we think about that point differently. Um, where in the past, we'd always say, this person said this, and do we need, to, we need to get their reaction. We need to get this reaction. We need to make sure that all voices and fairness is we're getting people an opportunity to speak out on this. And now we sort of tried to broaden that out a little bit. And we said, okay, if this person said that the, you know, the governor is off his rocker, we need to get the, try to get the governor's office. And we try to need to get, the, you know, and, but we now might say beyond that, who are the people whose voices haven't been getting or aren't getting into this story? And then do we need, to, how do we go find them? Um, and so where in the past we might've said, we got the right, we got the left, boom, we're there. Now we start to think, okay, but who's going to be impacted? How much, how much more time would we have to take to really figure out, um, you know, some history behind this story and how we got to this point? Um, you know, you come to that point where you're like, we got to eventually put this on the air, but now we've got to think a little bit more deeply about all the groups of people who, who might have a say in this story, but haven't been heard from much in the past. That's awesome. That's great. I, I certainly imagine that you both have very challenging and yet exciting um, stories in your future. Great things to tell. And I just want to say that we are so grateful. I could listen to the two of you all day, but I think it's time for us to wrap up this episode. So to Dave DeWitt and Sul Chan, I am so grateful for your presence here today. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Sul, we certainly wish you all the best in your new adventure and as you move to Texas, safe travels and, and, and a wonderful new adventure. And to uh, Dave, we can't wait to continue listening to you and, and to all of your reporters at WUNC. So thank you both very much. As we said earlier, this episode is the season one finale of Roundtables on Race, and we have so enjoyed exploring race and the news media with you. And we are deeply grateful to all of our guests this season for sharing with us the experience and insight with such candor, honesty, humor, and hope. And we also are deeply grateful to you, our listeners. Thank you for taking the first step of this journey with us, and we look forward to continuing it with you when we bring you season two this fall. Have a great day.